Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Geek Town Radio. We've got a slightly different show for you this week as I've been away down in London at MCM Comic Con for three days and then I've been at the Peaky Blinders premiere in Birmingham so not really had time to do a full show this week but when we were in London I got to talk to a bunch of different people so we've got a couple of the interviews from London going on to the show this week. Uh, first one we've got is the legend that is Manu Bennett. He's actually uh, did two interviews with us. The first one was mainly talking about Arrow. The second one was sort of mainly talking about the Shannara Chronicles and he talks a little bit about Spartacus and uh, some really interesting stuff in there that I didn't know before, particularly about his history. And uh, he also talks about the Deathstroke movie and his sort of feelings on that because, you know, obviously there was a lot of issues with DC on how it affected his character and that sort of stuff. So uh, that's all really cool. Both interviews are actually up as video interviews on the website, but I know a lot of people listen to the podcast and they are commuting and stuff, so you can't really watch a video while you're in a car. So I thought this might be quite useful. Uh, This is actually a slightly different edit to the ones that are up on the website because they're two separate interviews and I've actually mushed them together so it's one big like interview with Manu Bennett it's sort of a director's cut if you like of of those two interviews sort of smushed together after that we've got another interview uh, coming up with Anthony Lemke from Dark Matter so here's the interviews with Manu like I say there are two interviews that were smushed together for this you may notice at one point there were some kids asking questions that's from the first interview there is some slightly bad language coming up in the second interview although i have bleeped it on here i just want to point out uh the kids weren't in the interview where the bad language was used don't want to like make manu sound like he was swearing in front of children so so uh they were two separate interviews so the kids weren't there where that was in just in case you're concerned about that so here's the interview with manu hope you really enjoy this another interview coming up afterwards Last season on Arrow towards the end, I remember seeing on Twitter you uh, posted a picture saying, this is not me filming. 
at yeah, the moment. Yeah. Was that well, a troll or was it genuinely no, no, someone else? No, what happened was, you know, that there was a, there was a, an ongoing discussion about coming back to Arrow. And before that, that discussion had even eventuated, before even a contract had been signed, um, my colleague, Mr. Amel, <laughs> stated something online and, and it just wasn't, it wasn't appropriate at the time, you know, so, so I mean, I, I basically owned my own position, which I have every right to do, and, uh, and responded as such to really sort of just put off the notion that, that you know, I was, I was back on the show. And I also thought that, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I hate it when social media, you know, starts ruin, ruining the, the, the surprise, you know, I mean, you know, there's just so much, this is, I mean, the moment that I got out of the the, uh, the, you know, into the terminal at Vancouver Airport, there was some guy called Vancouver Snaps or something, like chasing me around with a camera, you know. But funnily enough, just as I was leaving Auckland Airport in New Zealand, I'd seen this hoodie, you know, this this hooded jacket, for an All Blacks one. <laughs> you know, we should, they should have blown it all together because it would have been like, you know, who's the guy with the All Blacks? <laughs> yes. But uh, so as I, as I went out of the terminal, I put this hood on and I raced past these guys with, with cameras and they were all t- trying to take photos. And in the end, they took one photo and I looked like Bigfoot. <laughs> um, all you could see was the beard hanging out of the bottom of the hood and they never got a straight shot, which was so cool. And, and so it all fueled to the kind of like, I don't know, to help keep, but as far as I was concerned, it was about help keeping the uh, the surprise active, you know, so that so the viewers could enjoy it when it happened, rather than just reading it on some some tweet. You know? I was surprised as a result of that because I I read it and I was like, oh, so it's it's going to be somebody else in the costume, and then when like I saw you in the episode, oh, absolutely, I, I went to, I went to every every means possible, you know, I I, I wrote stuff that was. You know, adverse to to, the, to to a lot of situations, <laughs> but in the end, you know, uh, Mark Guggenheim really played played along with it uh, with me, and uh, and you know, in the end, we were kind of like laughing at each other at how effective it ended up being. You know, uh, that, that you know, there have been you know these outward claims by both you know CW and, and Stephen and and, and and Mark that I was coming back on the show. And yet we managed to sort of create some kind of ambiguity and people were like, is he an Arpey? No, he couldn't be saying that about them. All this stuff. So it was a bit of a WWE kind of thing, really. Following on from that, how's it been for you to be back on the show? Oh, look, you know, uh, the you know the future of Deathstroke has always been kind of like this, I don't know, roller coaster ride between WB, Warner Brothers, and and their intentions with the character in the film world, you know, I mean, obviously now there's been the announcement of, you know, I, I think really, you know, we on the, on the, on, on the Arrow CW show really brought Deathstroke back to life, you know, and, uh, and, you know, that came down to some, some great, uh, writing, uh, from Mark Guggenheim and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a popular character again, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've loved over the years meeting with Marv Wolfram, Mark Wolfman came up to me at, a, at like a, at a convention, and he just leaned over the railing and he went, "Good stuff, good stuff." And I was like, "Oh, hey man, thank you, thanks." And then somebody said, "That was Mark Wolfman, the guy who created the character." And I jumped over the I jumped over this table and almost sort of fell into everybody's arms and ran across and and, and, and grabbed 
Marvel movement because the reason why I did was because I'd run into George Perez who illustrated the, the very first drawing of Deathstroke on, on the Teen Titans cover and when I met him I, I met him in, uh, in somewhere in Canada and I'd walked up to him and I'd said oh hi Mr. Perez I'm Manu and I'm, I'm, I've just been cast to play Slade Wilson on Arrow and George Perez turned around to me and he said you don't look anything like him <laughs> I was like what you, you can't play <laughs> this whole thing and I sort of chased him around for the rest of the day going Mr. Perez please tell me why you think I don't and he goes well he's older than you you know he's got grey hair and I said yeah but they're going to paint grey hair under me and he went no, yeah but yeah but you're not going to stop it and he, made, he did this whole thing and he like really blew me, blew me away so I was like you know being told by the guy who drew Deathstroke that I could never be Deathstroke and um I remember even leaving that convention and, and George Perez got in like a, because we were both all staying at the same hotel and he got into a car and I jumped into the back seat of the car next to him. <laughs> and I went, oh, hi, Mr. Perez. <laughs> it's me again. Why? <laughs> it was just funny. Uh, and and he, he was very, very adamant about it. He just really, when he looked at me, he didn't, he didn't see Deathstroke. And then uh, this time that I saw George Perez, you know, and then I ran after him. I ran after him because I sort of wanted to find some kind of vindication or some kind of, you know, like what did the guy who wrote, the guy who drew Deathstroke never thought I was looked like Deathstroke. <laughs> did the guy who wrote Deathstroke think that I, you know, pulled off, you know, something of a success with the character? And then and Marvel was, was like incredibly complimentary. You know, he said that, you know, all the gray stuff, all the gray matter. And that's what I think is really important about, about Deathstroke. And then that's, that's one thing about, wonderful thing about television is that, you know, you, you, we have so much time to flesh out the character over so many episodes. You know, I like to pace my characters. You know, I like to set them in one tone. And, and, and move in that tone and capture the audience in a certain way. And then, so, you know, the, usually I'll be working with a, with a notion of when the twist is going to come. Then I'll get to that moment. But then once I've got to that moment, I've humanized the character. So therefore, that any flaws that you make have to be taken into consideration of the human quality of the character. And that's what we tend to forget about in society. Once the headlines start running, you know, people are condemned and turned into demons and all this sort of stuff. But, but really, we, we, you don't really know people and you don't really know their circumstances. But, you know, on a, on, a, on a TV show, when you get to flesh all of this out, and I did the same with Crixus, when Spartacus, you know, you, you, you get to create a human being that people can see inside the soul of, if you, if you offer your soul up. And that's what I tried to do with, with both characters. And, uh, you know, that gray matter is uh, something that I believe has worked well on the television show because we've had so much time to mix with it. In that regard, it's going to be interesting now that they're doing the film, just how much of Slade Wilson's character can be read in, in 90 minutes. You know, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but, and, you know, I, you know, obviously they're going to have a bigger spend on all the visual effects and all that sort of stuff. And Joe Manganiello, you know, I've met Joe a couple of times and he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy, you know, and he's incredibly well built and he'll, he'll fit a superhero costume you know, maybe better than anybody because he is that, like, what's that ratio? One head to 10, <laughs> 10 heads make up the body or something. He's got that kind of, you know, physique. So, you know, I, th I think he's, uh, I think he's, you know, he's, he's well and capable of, of, of doing a wonderful uh, Slade Wilson and, and I wish him all the very best. I mean, at the end of the day, I've, I've, I've had a, a wonderful opportunity to do the character, but, you know, at the end of the day, Ron Perlman voiced him. You know, in, an, in another in another gig, and uh, like Batman, you know, so many so many actors have gotten to play the character. That it's Joe's turn. Go, Joe! I hope he does. I hope he does very well. Liam Hall has been cast as your son for season six. Yeah. Is there anything you can tease about that? Uh, is there going to be a late Wilson adventure with uh, Martin Aaron? Mark Guggenheim has been 
fairly honest with me about about the way that you know he's been constrained, you might say, in terms of how to include Deathstroke in, in the Arrow series. The Warner Brothers adult company, the film branch, of you know, uh, made it uh, <laughs> not possible to use certain characters on the Arrow TV show, The Suicide Squad, Harley Quinn. All these characters have been, um, you know, they, they passed a prison cell on one episode of Arrow and Harley Quinn was inside there. And you had Deadshot and you had all these other other characters that, that, that could have been fleshed out more. But Warner Brothers' parent company had said, oh, you know, we're going to use them in the films and, uh, you know, so therefore you got to step back off using them in the TV series, which is which is kind of like a shame, but, but you know, part of, you know, who am I to to say, you know, I mean, that's at the end of the day, their property and they've got to teach, treat it in the, in the way that they think is best in order to make the impact. But, uh, but, 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 you know, it's, it is the way it is with, with the possibilities of television, you know, Mark and Mark Guggenheim and I talked about a, a Deathstroke TV series and it would be awesome. You know, I mean, we, you know, if we could, if we could make it R rated, you know, <laughs> if, we could, if we could maybe leap onto something, uh, another network platform that we could be at that level, you know, make it Logan, Logan-esque and all that yeah. sort of stuff, then, then we can do it. I mean, you know, Mark Wigan and I could write that series, but it's not our property to, to, to say. But, you know, I know the fan base out there would be, would be uh, keen for it, but, you know, yeah. who am I, man? I'm just a small guy from New Zealand. But going off from there, if, like, in any one of the DC universe, if you did get to be Deathstroke, would there be another superhero or villain you'd love to have played or still would love to play now on TV or film? You know what, I, I have no expectations at all. Uh, I think I've had some really great characters to play in my run as an actor so far. Uh, I've been in the TV realm for quite some time, and and I, as I say, I enjoy that realm because, because you know, you have this long period of time to, to make characters work. Um, where to from, from today is kind of like a question. I just did this really wonderful two episodes with Liam Hall, who's playing my son, Slate Wilson's son on Arrow. So we have this uh, wonderful episode five and six of, uh, of, of season six of Arrow, which is a whole new dimension. You know, it was it was so, so challenging on so many ways to play this new Slate Wilson. And I think the audience is going to be both surprised and, and, and interested and, and hopefully satisfied by the way that Mark Guggenheim wrote this compelling two-episode part of, of this next season of Arrow. Uh, Liam Hall... It was interesting. Liam and I met, and of course, very quickly, you have to try to form a bond because, you know, we met with maybe 48 hours before the camera was going to start rolling. And him and I got together in a hotel room and we started, as you do, acting beside each other, you know, and he's a young actor. So therefore, and, you know, he's seen all my stuff. So I could tell he was a little bit intimidated, you know, he, you know, he'd seen my Crixus and, you know, he was, a, he was a huge fan of Arrow and suddenly he'd come out of obscurity. He'd been living in Vancouver for two years as a young Australian actor trying to find a break and, and he hadn't really landed anything. So he'd had no real experience in the big game, you know what I mean? And, and, he, and he, he sort of, as, as we sat in the hotel room, I could, I could, I could, I could figure some, because I've been through that, you know, so I could figure where he was at on some of his, you know, personal kind of uh, emotional limitations at the time just because I've been in that situation where you're nervous, you know, and you've got to sort of just get rid of those nerves and start being kind of like tactile with your fellow actor. So Liam and I actually just sat there and we did Meisner. We, we sat there and we, and we looked at each other and we started saying the lines while we were studying each other as, as people, trying to, trying to notice from each other what we could see about each other more deeply in each other's eyes, read, read the, the connection, you know. And we actually applied that when it came to, to, to our first, you know, our first scene. 
and it, and it works so well without making that kind of really. So you, you get such a short amount of time to get ready with it in, in this scenario that unless you're really connected to people, you know, unless you can really get that connection in there, you're going to tell that they're father or son or not, or whether they're just acting father or son. Right? And after 48 hours of doing this kind of Meisner thing that we did together, we got really, uh, really, you know, connected in, in a way that you know I think the fans are going to going to find this very interesting because you know there, there was Slade and Oliver on the island which everybody bought into they bought into that bond but Slade and his own son has got a, a whole different variation of, uh, of vulnerabilities responsibilities fears that you, you're losing control of a child of your own and yeah yeah I, I, I was so happy at the end you know, we, you know so were the directors the two directors that worked the two episodes they were so happy and, and we worked so hard to make it, make it, make it something wonderful. And Mark Guggenheim kind of like opened up the doors to so much more. And I can't give you any 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 uh, spoilers <laughs> on that. But, but honestly, the way, the way that it, that the, these two episodes open a door is interesting. It's potential future. What up, kid? I have a question coming up. You know, you've been talking about your son and everything with Deathstroke. Deathstroke has been... you got to come up here and ask me this question from up here. you got to be on camera. Come here. This kid is so cool. You're the coolest interviewer I've ever met. Come on, Ben. You know, we've been hearing about Deathstroke and all everything he's been doing. He's been a prominent character on Arrow. And we're finally getting, like, a big expansion for him. You know, we're going to get his origin, everything, you know, how Deathstroke became Deathstroke. Mm. How do you feel about that? I know you said it's an honor thing, but it's, like, it's something, you know, you don't get to experience every day. What, what were you feeling like when... You heard about that for the first time. Yeah, I think I think you need to sort of be a little bit cautious about the origin story, whether the origin story, because uh, you know a lot of people are aware of the of the military background of Slade Wilson in the comic book series, right? In the DC comic book series, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, a comic book series that everybody read when they were kids or whatever and, and grew up with, and that's why they like Deathstroke. So, so the CW version of this is, um, you know, we're, we're not exactly on the same page or the same time frame as what the, uh, the comic book origin story is. So when Mark Guggenheim has said we're going to discover the origin of Deathstroke, he's talking about a different origin, kind of like Shadow. It was a different, a different like if you wanted to look at the origin story of, of Slade on Arrow, the TV show, then Shadow's a big part of that. But she was not; she wasn't really the component of, of the, uh, the DC world. So yeah, so this uh, this origin story is is more about Slade and his son. It was such a new spin, you know. I, I mean, I like to characterize through experience. So therefore, you know, I, you know, me being a father, it was it was interesting to play a fatherly kind of. Uh, presentation, you know, of, of Slate, because I, I, I knew where, you know, there's, there's a completely different, a different realm to just Slate with Oliver on the island. And I think where I got forced to go because of this real father and uh, son scenario was, was, was new territory. The kids get the last questions. What do you think of Diggle's Oh, um, I did. <laughs> but I'm sure he did a good job. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's he's like you know he's he's like super strong. He's like a, a real martial artist in the real world. Yeah. If you, if you, walk, if you walk up the days, if anybody walked up to David Ramsey and gave him any, he could flip you over, <laughs> choke you out, and break every bone in your body in a split second. David Ramsey is a machine. <laughs> like if anybody's a real machine, like I remember on I remember on on Spartacus. We had this one guy called Racho, and Racho's a Bulgarian stunt guy actor. 
but he's the real deal. Like you don't, you just never like would mess with Rachel. And he, he played, he played uh, Naeus, a character called Naeus in Spartacus. But we always used to go, well, he's the, he's the real Spartacus. And plus Spartacus came from somewhere around Bulgaria or Romania or something. So, so he, he actually had the right blood and everything. But like, you know, if you, if you want to have a real, like a badass, like a real, like a real sort of potential superhero kind of physical guy, it's David Ramsey. He's, he's physically pretty astute. Have you got songs in Cairo? Do you feel about your characters changing up? Awesome question. Listen, I mean, you know, the, the thing about Slade prior to season six is that, you know, you sort of had a first season where Slade came in and was kind of like, you know, a mentor to Oliver and a friend. I mean, a real true friend, you know, and there was a couple of holes that came up in the storyline that, that uh, were, were created for drama. And that, that's the fact that, you know, Oliver gave Slade his first shot of Mirakuru, which is kind of like a story hole. <laughs> you know, when it ends up being like Speedy, you know, what's his name? Speedy started bringing out a Mirakuru and I go, like, awesome. and they'll go, like, Roy. Roy, yeah. And they go, they're like, Roy, Roy's a good person. It was only the Mirakuru. He's a good person. He's a good person. But they kind of like didn't write that same storyline for Slade, you know, but Slade was the good person one, one time and then, and then Oliver gave him the Mirakuru. A couple of little holes. I'm just not going to elaborate on them, but there you go. <laughs> And I think the audience remained in a way with Slade because what Slade saw was like a shadow get killed. I mean, once you take away the Mirakuru, which they did incredibly so, I I didn't think they could pull it off, really. I mean, you know, at first I thought, okay, they're going to bring Slade back and the Mirakuru is going to be pulled out of the equation. But really? Can you you get back to like Oliver and, and Slade standing side by side, being able to get along? I mean, a death stroke on Mirakuru killed his mother and uh it's kind of like irredeemable in a way but they wrote such an awesome couple of scenes that at the end of season six the moment that i walked out of the, the prison door and i looked at oliver and i said it was like a bad dream i, I remember things but then I, I, it was the miracle you know and then him and i look at each other and we start making the way back into the reality of an old relationship and season season six starts out and it's almost completely dismissed and uh, and Oliver's going to help me go find my boy. I didn't say that. <laughs> um, could you um, tell us a little bit about what what's it like to work with a younger generation on Shadowfall? Of course, I'm obviously it's quite a boring experience. What have you done then? I mean, one of the one of the endearing things about working with that young cast in, in the Shannara Chronicles was really the fact that New Zealand is my country, you know, and uh, in in a way, you know, Alanon is kind of like the already the keeper of the four lands and, and so when they when they arrived I, I sort of had to sort of take them kind of like under my wing anyway and then and, and show them around New Zealand and sort of give them a bit of a because you know these, these are a young group of actors you know who were getting one of you know one of their first big break shows and sort of coming out to, to New Zealand and uh, you know New Zealand's a long way from from home for, for you know Poppy from England and Ivana from uh, you know from Spain and, and Austin from, from America so so you know it was it was, it was kind of nice you know I, I almost felt like in real life that I was um, their father <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it was uh, you know you know uh, yeah, yeah were you familiar with the Shannara series before you got the role no not at all no. Have you read the book since, or uh, just try to keep? Yeah, the yeah. You, you know, I, I, I kind of. Well, I was intrigued because once we started doing the show, I, I was, I was sort of interested in seeing. Well, well you know, I, I, I lied. Before we started the show, I, I, I read, uh, you know, the Sword of Shannara, mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know, I, I got the feeling of, of how Terry wrote Al-Anon, you know, and Al-Anon would always sort of appear like on the page, like, you know, yeah. And, uh, but it was kind of funny because, you know, I, uh, you know, I say funny, like it was, it was like, I remember the first scene, uh, working with the director, uh, on discovering Will for the mm. first time. And he was in a bathtub. Ivana's character, Eritrea, had stolen the Elfstones of him. And there was this moment where I thought it was kind of like, I don't know, I thought it was like Strider, you know, leaning mm. over the top of Frodo. Lightning bolt, you know, illuminates the hood. And this sort of, you know, that's what I imagined that scene to be. And, uh, and the director was like, oh, you know, we've, this is going to be comedy. This, this is going to be, this is going to be a funny scene, you know. And I was really struck by that. I was like, really? Like, what about the dun, 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 dun? <laughs> you know? And he was like, no, 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 we've, we've discussed this scene and we're going to go, you know, this way with it. So, so you know, Austin sort of was you know, directed to go like, oh, Alan, I drew it. Oh, I, my mom told me about it, drew it. And, uh, and it was and, and it kind of like, you know, it, it set off a different tone than what I'd, I'd sort of expected at first, you know, and it, it sort of made it like maybe jovial and jokey and, mm-hmm. and friendly and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was something, but then it was never dun, 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 <laughs> with, 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 with that character much. Cause we'd always sort of have this jibe going on, uh, that started up, um, Am I digging a hole here? Next season, you're just going to get the musical cue. <laughs> um, but you know, this is this is this is some of the you know this was some of the the way that the show was fashioned for MTV. Yeah, talking about funny writing, uh, I think you had your own experiences contributing quite a memorable spell to the the series. Uh, can you maybe tell us that story? Oh, <laughs> can I? Yeah, you can. <laughs> you can. You're allowed to. Rakuf Rathom. <laughs> so what, what happened <laughs> was we had this we had this moment where uh, Ar- Ar- Arian Arian Ar- Arian what was his name uh, <laughs> right it, was, it was a while ago let me, let me get this straight so there were the two brothers right Ar- is Arian help me out here guys come on you're pointing your cameras at me and you're like he's waiting for me to put my foot in my mouth I know what you're like uh, Daniel McPherson's character Arian Arian Anyway, okay, so so there's, there's this moment where the young prince was being killed by by the Dagdamore, and and Alanon was 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 racing across the I don't know part of the forelands to get there to to to, to save them, and uh, and when he arrived, it was too late, and the, and the Dagdamore had run his sword sword through uh, Daniel McPherson's character, that one, Arian, yeah, Arian, right, <laughs> and in the scene, it just said that that Alanon stood upon the rocky outcrop witnessing the the death of the young prince and he sent a shockwave through the ground just to, to stop the Dagnamore. And when it came to the moment, it was like Alanon just got up there and went like, and I thought, oh God, this must surely he must say something here, you know, like, and so the director said, yeah, 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 it's a good point, but we don't have any dialogue. And I said, okay. Well, the director was like, can, you know, can you come up with something? Okay. Sure. He said, I'm going to go over here and shoot something. You can come up with something. When I come back, we'll shoot it and use whatever dialogue you came up with. So, so I thought, what would Alamon say? Watch as the death of this young young prince, you know, you got there too late. And so the director came back and he was like, okay, uh, have you got a, a line, a spell? I said, yeah, come on. He went, okay, what is it? And I said, just film. I'll, I'll, I'll just break it out, you know. Went, okay. So he went down and he's going, okay, an action. Grab my staff. I hit the ground. I went, Rakuf Rathom. Shockwave went through. 
and he, the director was like, oh, it was good. Awesome. Awesome. That sounded great. That sounded just like Druid speech. And I was like, yeah, cool, eh? He's like, yeah, yeah. Let's do it again. Okay, do it again. Awesome. Awesome. That's it. Got it. So we all walked down the hill and we got into the mini bus that will take us back to the uh, production site. And the director's sitting next to me and he goes, that, that, that line sounded perfect. So yeah, thanks. And he goes, what was it? Like, you just came up with it? Like, and I said, yeah, it's, it was like, it's mother or backwards. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, Alan gets up and he's like, mother <laughs> And funnily enough, I got I got contacted like we had a scene this season, on the second season where I was in in you know I, I can't actually I can't tell you what happened but we're in a very very bad predicament and um, and I broke it out again. It's the season two repeat of this line and they and they know about it right. But the lady in America, in America, when I had to do ADR, you know, I had to do some ADR work, they said, oh, we have to repeat, she sent me this message, that we have to repeat that line that you said, whatever it was. What was it that you said? And so I sent her this very eloquent email, you know, saying, oh, it's, it's uh, Rakuf Rathon. And if you read it backwards, you'll probably know what it means. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it was a very funny moment, you know, just to, just to have that as kind of a bit of a legend behind one of the, one of the spells and a bit of fun on set. <laughs> You've had a, a really great range of characters in your career on TV and film. Is there anything that you haven't been able to do yet, any sorts of characters or anything that you'd really like to be able to have a go at? Well, you know, I, I'm kind of like... I, I, I've kind of got a music and a dance background and a, and a few things that are probably probably my, my involvement in the arts was, was not the tough guy you know originally you know like I was, I was in, you know, I, I wrote music piano music you know and, uh, and did ballet and, and dance you know and, uh, and these softer expressions are kind of like part of Part of my character, but I, I do think I flush them out in characters. But I, I sort of end up using them as secondary layers that help develop the character in the audience's mind. You know, like like Crixus. You know, mm -hmm. I came on so hard with Crixus that my, my director walked up to me. Sorry, the producer uh, of our show, Spartacus, walked up and said, "Manu, what are you doing with Crixus? Nobody likes him. He's like so." arrogant and unlikable and I'm like and I was like I know just trust me trust me and and the reason I I played it like that was because you know the reason I got into into acting in the first place was uh you know I I, I lost my mother and brother in two separate car accidents and I was in the accident with my mother and uh and I was in a coma for like two weeks in a hospital and when I woke up my worst enemy the guy who was my worst enemy was was at the hospital and to come to see me and, uh, you know, he'd lost his mother when he was younger and uh, related to this moment that I was having. So even though he was my worst enemy, he came to me because of common circumstance. And all of a sudden, him and me formed a bond and became best friends. <laughs> now, that's what I infused into Crixus and Spartacus when I saw how that story was going to flesh out. I, 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 mean, I know this story already. But it doesn't start off pretty. It starts off as enemies. And it starts off with one of the characters, one of them's playing the protagonist on the screen, then one of, them, one of them has to play the antagonist hard. So I went in really hard playing Crixus as the antagonist. And everyone was like, oh, we hate him. Hope he dies. You know, da, 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 da. But to be able to turn people's feelings around, like my feelings were turned around for this 
for this friend of mine in the hospital, my enemy who became my friend, to be able to do that to people, to have them hating somebody and to have them turn around completely and, and potentially cry when I died. You know, I've, I've met men who say they cried in that scene, but they say they hated me in the beginning. And to be able to win people's emotions over like that, I think opens up possibilities, you know. And whenever I'm playing a, 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 a villain-esque kind of character, you know, like Slade Wilson as well, you know, I always try to infuse vulnerability, suppressed emotions, you know, even when it's when the other characters aren't looking. You just have this moment where you go deep inside of yourself and just sit in that pocket. And I know what that pocket is, you know. I've had a loss in my life, so I know the feeling. Funny thing is I have a lot of people from things like, you know, I have military people from like who've been in Afghanistan who've got PTSD and they come up to me and they go, Oh, you know, what's Spartacus when we're up in fighting in the in the mountains, you know, isolated and lost several of our team, you know in a firefight and get around and watch Spartacus story keeps people bonded together and Spartacus was this sort of story that they related to yeah. and here I am standing in front of these real warriors these real soldiers who are pouring their heart out to me saying like oh we really connected with Crixus you know and I think to myself how do I do that on a television show but the thing is as an artist you know I had my brother died in my hands to be honest you know died in my hands so I know that feeling and I can put that in as an artist into my performance I reserve it for that that's my safe place for it you know, I think it's important that as an artist, you kind of like, you have to know life, you know, you have to be honest, you have to be upfront, and, and as much as you can give, give. And, uh, you know, I, I try to do that with my characters, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I come to these conventions and stuff like that, you know, and I come face to face with the fans. I realize that that's what they kind of take in through that screen. And one thing that's very interesting about all of that that I found out last year was I went to Greece and I, I went to a place called Epidavros. And in Epidavros, they, they built the very first amphitheater. The people who built it were called the Escipio. The Escipio were a, a medicine people that uh, made apotheki and stuff like that. So they, they were into making medicines, and they were well-known throughout Europe, and they would travel a lot with their, with their medicines and, and teaching about medicine. And they built an amphitheater. The first one that was ever built was built in Epidavros. And it was built because they believed that voice and storytelling was healing. When I heard that, I suddenly felt this huge relief that I wasn't just caught up in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, that I actually had an ancient reason for being in the place that I am, you know, to, to you know, when that person with PTSD comes to me and I can say, yeah, brother, you know, my brother died in my hands as well. And in this art form, we made it an emotional connect across the void through a television screen, but it was healing, you know, and, and that's valuable to me, really valuable. You know? So, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that with us, Manny. Thank you so much for your time. No worries, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. So that was the mega interview with Manu Bennett. Hope you really enjoyed that. Some great stuff in there. And I'm definitely, definitely going to be asking him about, since he mentioned he was a song and dance guy, I'm going to be asking about the possibility of a Deathstroke musical at some point in the future. He really should have been in that musical episode of uh, of uh, Flash when they did that. But uh, anyway, so that's that interview out of the way. Next one we've got is with Anthony Lemke, who played three on Dark Matter which of course sadly was cancelled and uh, we had uh, we've had Joe the showrunner 
on talking around about Dark Matter when the last season launched. It's a show that I really loved. I'm so unfortunate that it didn't get picked up again. This is the first time Anthony's really spoken about the cancellation since it happened. And uh, he's quite philosophical, I think, about it. And uh, he was a lovely, lovely guy, really sweet, lovely to interview. Talks quite a lot about, you know, sort of what happened, why it happened, what he thought of the character. He talks a bit about what he's doing next. So even if you maybe don't know the show very well, it's quite an interesting chat about just sort of the industry in general as well. So here's the interview with Anthony. Hope you really enjoy this. Normal service will be resumed next week. Uh, we will be back with uh, probably some more chat about uh, stuff that we got up to in Comic-Con. We'll have more interviews coming up and uh, lots more TV news and air dates and all that good stuff we usually have on every week. So here's the interview with Anthony and then we'll see you next week. Bye. Kicking off with the first, I guess, the most obvious question the fans are going to have. Um, yeah. Obviously, I think there's a lot of people out there who are very disappointed to see the series not get renewed and yeah. also a bit surprised by that decision in various ways. Yeah. Um, given the fact this is the first time you're talking since then, how do you feel about that? And how do you feel particularly about the fan reaction? Well, I'll start with the first um, first question. How do I feel about it? I think uh, uh, surprise was the first one. I mean, our numbers were pretty strong. We knew the, if you read Joe's blog, if anybody reads Joe's blog, he sort of intimately went through the economics and politics in behind that decision. And that's, uh, that's something that we were aware of from day one. We knew that, that our show was in a different position than a show that was owned by a network and that puts you in a more vulnerable position. Um, so we knew that. We knew that, that if, uh, if anybody was ever to go, it would most likely be us first. Um, that said, we were surprised. Yeah, we were as surprised as I think, as I think the fans were. Um, they, uh, the network had, you know, had given us a fair amount of support in that previous year. The numbers were, were pretty good. There was one little soft lull uh, in the middle of season three for about three episodes. And then it came back really strong. And um, so we were, I think we were surprised. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, uh, yeah, disappointed, really disappointed. I love this show. I love this character. Um, I've been in the industry for a little while now and yeah, you know, the industry will continue on and work will continue on and you know, the mortgages will get paid and, you know, food will be on the table. It's not particularly worried about that. Um, but it's rare that you find a show that's this special where the, um, fans get it where I was really proud to be a part of this show and what this show stood for. Um, I found it was a very restrained show when it came to the amount of sex and violence that, that normally you see on television that I get it, you know, the more sex, the more breasts, the more violence and decapitations, the more audience members you're going to get. Um, Joe, that just wasn't his thing. Didn't want to make that show. And, uh, I've got young kids, um, and I was proud to be on a show where I felt like that was fairly restrained. Yeah, sure, there was there was violence, but it was more eighteen kind of violence than it was real violence in any sort of, you know, especially given what we're used to seeing these days on television. Um, so I think, yeah, very disappointed that this really special time of my life uh, had come to an end, where I could no longer tell this you know, this sort of sensitive character's story uh, in a way that I found uh, to be almost a throwback to to simpler times in a way. 
Um, so that. And the second question about the fan reaction, um, heartwarming, I think it was really kind of fun to watch uh, and surprising, to be honest, both. Um, we hadn't created a, a strong social media presence. There was no concerted effort. There wasn't anybody really behind it all to say, okay, guys, we're going to like in the story, we're going to craft a social media presence like way hot saying, um, in, uh, in Winona Earp, where you can tell that, you know, they created those characters so that when they put them together, they would have a really cool hashtag, uh, and good on them for doing that because that's, you know, I don't, I don't mean to say that in a, in a way that's, uh, pejorative. It's not, um, but our show wasn't that it, it, it didn't think about social media. So consequently our interactions with social media, uh, and the fans were a lot more limited. And so when the show was canceled, uh, and all of a sudden everyone starts coming out of the woodwork where if we had been more assiduous in the beginning, we would have realized they were there from the beginning. Well, I don't think we realized that it was as impactful as it was on as many people. And, um, the letters and the stories that people told were really touching. I mean, there were tears in my eyes when I read a bunch of them and, um, you forget, I think you forget with, you know, the kids and the agents and the mortgages and trying to find the next job and all that stuff, you forget why you're doing it. And I think the fans really reminded us all of why we do it. Um, and we know to say the words, you know, in cons and in, in interviews, we know to say the words, but we forget sometimes the reality behind those words, that storytelling is the most powerful way for humans to learn and contextualize their lives. And when you're lucky enough to be in a show where it really is just about the characters. And that was something that, uh, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Those sort of two months where we were doing those save the show things was really, I, I don't think anybody really ever thought that, Hey, listen, we're going to do this. It's going to save this show. Uh, we hoped, I mean, hope is one thing, but, but a logical realization that, Hey, listen, you know, if they said no, they said no. Right. I think it was a different expression. It was an expression of togetherness an expression of, um, love for what we've all created together. And I mean, the fans included, you know, it's not just, you know, we're, we're clearly not in space. It's not reality. The story doesn't get finished until the fans finish it and, and go along that ride with us and interpret, uh, the story in a way that is probably deeper than it was written. And that's art. That's the whole point where you put it out there and you put out an unfinished piece, no matter what it is, whether it's a novel or a painting, you put out an unfinished piece and it's your context and your context and everybody's individual context that sees what we put out there and sees their own ending and their own completion. And, um, that's what that two months was about. It was about that completion and acknowledging that completion uh, for everybody. It was, it was beautiful. It's sad. <laughs> sad that it's any, over. Uh, do you have any particular scenes or aspects of your character that you, you enjoyed the most? I mean, something you can elaborate on, something that really stood out for you? Yeah. Um, what I loved most about three was his impulse wasn't always to do the right thing first. And, uh, I found him complex that way. Sometimes it was, but frequently it was pretty muddled about what the right thing was. And it, it you know, the signals weren't always so clear in three's brain about how to do things right. And in the end he got there. And I found that to be 
a lot like my lived experience because it isn't, I mean, yeah, fine. You know, the rules of life, but the truth is life's messy. You know, like it's not always easy to follow the rules of life. Um, even though you know them, you know, you have the angel on one side and then you've got the little other angel or devil or whatever on the other side, but that's just reality because life is never neat. Life is almost never anything but kind of complex and messy. And I found that to be the most redeeming aspect of his character that he felt to me like, um, like a real character who you didn't know whether he was going to do the right thing, but fundamentally you could kind of count on him in the end to be there. Yeah. I felt like, yeah, I felt a, an identification with that character because he didn't have a superhero. Either. I think that's superpower. And that was also one of his big strengths. The fact that he lost every fight he was ever in the fact that he, you know, wasn't sort of half, half a robot and could, or wasn't really good at anything, to be honest. He didn't have a strength other than just getting back up off the mat and living life and being there for his friends. And that felt to me like, yeah, I can identify with that because most people don't have anything that they're the best at, whether it's, you know, school or running or hockey or like, that's me. That's everybody. That's like, that'll, that's all my friends. That's my kids. That's like, I don't, no any olympians you know like i'm i'm three we're all kind of three and uh that part i felt kind of honored to play that character in a show where not everybody but a lot of characters had their superpowers you know five was like always able to solve everything mechanically and was really cool which is great and it's awesome except you know most people aren't like that and you know six might have been the only other character except he had a really strong strong moral center that was that was you know, it guided him through very clearly. So decisions were never really all that hard for him. So it kind of felt like three was three was the messiest, most average of the lot. And uh, those are the most fun to play. I'm talking about the rest of the cast, obviously, mm -hmm. I think there was a great chemistry on screen. Can you talk a little bit about what was so special about getting the chance to work with some of those other wonderful people? Yeah. Yeah. That's part of, part of what made this show special. And, uh, you know, what I mourn when I think about it not being part of my life. Um, it's interesting. We weren't, we weren't buds. We didn't go out drinking together. We didn't go out clubbing. We don't, A, none of us are really like that. Uh, it's not so much our thing. Couple, but most no. Um, I would say that we're a whole hell of a lot like family, like your extended family that you see at Christmas and and New Year's and you respect and like and care for and are happy to see. But we all had our other lives and we all lived our other lives. And when we finished work, we went home. And it wasn't like we were like, oh my God, we're the best of friends. It wasn't that. And, and I think I respected that um, and needed that in my life. They were colleagues. They were an extended family. And um, I know the way this works in the industry. Uh, that's it's not gone. You've got cons and whatever, but it's basically gone. Um, it's like summer camp. When you stop going to summer camp, you don't see the people anymore. Um, you care about them, but, uh, it was nice to come back to that set. And that extends beyond the, uh, it extends beyond the, the actors on the show. The, the crew had been together for a long time. The crew was together during the lost girl years. So for them, I don't think Jay, our producer of Prodigy, <laughs> has got another show lined up in that studio, which means it's the first time in eight or nine years that these guys will not be working together. And that's rare in our industry. You know, when you get to work with someone for that long, you develop a, a shorthand and it's, uh, 
a comfort level. So yeah, lots to be missed. I think looking to what might have been, obviously mm-hmm. fans have their own um, feelings about the direction the show would have gone in or things they would have liked to have seen. Yeah. I, I guess two questions. First of all, um, was there a clear vision in terms of what the show was going to become had it been given the chance to keep going? And on the other side, were there things yeah. that you would have liked to have seen given that chance? Yeah, there was a clear vision. Joe, uh, Joe from the very beginning told us he had a five season arc and, um, he was, they had already, this is how surprised they were. I mean, they had already written, they'd started writing season four. They had, you know, the writing room had begun in June. Uh, they were paid to do that by Jay, who was fairly confident they were going to get season four. Um, so yeah, there was a clear vision. There was a five year story and, uh, we didn't know it because he didn't ever tell us. Uh, he would always, we would experience it a little bit like the fans would experience it, except a little bit ahead in the sense that it would be parsed out sort of script by script, even though he knew where our characters were going. And every once in a while, there would be things that changed, like Sarah wasn't supposed to be around. She wasn't supposed to be as big a character as she was. Um, you know, the Android revolution that was you know, pretty clear that that was coming for season four, um, or at least in the future, uh, that was always there except this character of Sarah wasn't. So Sarah ended up being, uh, I mean, I guess two probably would have played a bit of that role as sort of a part, part human, part augmented human, more created human. Um, but in a way, Sarah is the perfect person for, for that conflict to be on both sides of that, to be, you know, at once Bosnian and, uh, and Serb. And, you know, to be both of those in the context of a civil war where, you know, the Bosnians are beaten up in the Serbs and vice versa. And she's like, which side do I pick? And do I have to pick a side? And the truth is, in those conflicts, you always have to pick a side. You don't get the luxury to say, I'm both. It's okay. Then they'll both shoot you. So it's, it's, uh, it would have been really, it would have been really interesting to see that, uh, that dynamic play out. And, and I, you know, I, Joe's thinks a lot about life and he's very well read and very well educated. And I would have loved to hear him, you know, discuss, discuss that in, in uh, on television and in the context of a really fun kick-ass space show. And it would have been fun to be able to do that. So I know that Joe will probably find a way to give closure to the audience, to the audience, to the fans. He'll probably figure that one out, whether it's in a comic book or something like that, um, or through his blog or God knows. Um, but he, uh, for however hard I, you know, this was on me, it, it was triply or quadruply so on Joe. This was a project that I think meant more to him than almost any other project he's been involved in. So uh, it's it was hard. It was hard. And then I think in his mind, there's probably a small hope that he'll be able to finish this off with a miniseries somewhere. It's above my pay grade. It's not uh, something that I can really affect change on. So I try to say, all right, it's over and uh, and move on until until that phone call comes. In a bittersweet way, is it at least kind of nice to know that you've joined the very luminous ranks of shows within this genre cancelled before their time? Because <laughs> it is it's a weird badge of honor for the shows, particularly in this genre. Yeah, it, it, the, I guess it remains to be seen whether we've really joined that. Um, that uh, that's not something that I have any control over. Um, yeah, I mean, if it grows into something that that people feel like, my God, it was it was canceled before its time, and it becomes a thing that becomes like a firefly thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a huge honor. Um, I can't. It's not something that I can speak to at this point in time because it's not something I can control, and nor do I have any sense of whether or not that would be the case. Uh, I know that the fans. 
you know, the context of the, the way the show ended can't help but leave a certain taste in people's mouths. And um, we'll see how that reverberates forward. Do you think that um, sort of Canada and the creative film industry gets enough props for the amazing strides it put forward in sci-fi? I mean, you're talking about North Girl, mm. you also have things like Continuum, obviously why known as a lot of shows across the world. Killjoys and Arrow, and I mean, like, to be, to be honest, mm. half the shows that you're here for shoot in Canada, and they are, are some version of Canadian content, whether, you know, a show like Arrow is a is more what we would call a service production in the sense that, yeah, it shoots in Canada, but it there's a lot of American, you know, influence on that show in terms of its creation, so... Whereas a show like Dark Matter or Winona Earp, or, uh, well, those two specifically are, are very Canadian, uh, Lost Girl as well. Killjoys is a bit of a hybrid, but again, mostly Canadian. Um, the Expanse is more in the arrow thing, but that's shot in Canada. So, yeah, Canada has, has developed a really interesting niche. Um, I think now it's, now it's because of expertise, because there is. Uh, a strong um, set of skills to make sci-fi television. And I think in the beginning it probably started because it was cheap. And, you know, sci-fi is a genre where you can make Doctor Who and it's a massive and popular show, but you look at it and you're like, it's kind of cheap, you know? But people people are like, we don't care about that because it's always about the story and it's always about the characters and about thinking about what society would be like in certain sets of new parameters. And so, fine, you can have a robot. And even now that Doctor Who's probably got more money, you know, the robots still kind of look, you know, it's not Hollywood, right? And so I think that's probably why Canada, because we were cheap, is why we, you know, why we started off in this genre. But um, it's no longer why we're continuing in this genre. It's because the expertise is there. And uh, Canada, in various different ways, has spent a lot of money in developing um, their CGI capabilities. There's some really strong companies that on big LA shoots will come to Canada and they don't, it's not tax credits. They come there because that's, you know, Montreal, it's where some of the, the best post graphics guys are in the world. Um, and that's, that was a concerted effort by, in that case, the provincial government 15 years ago. And so you're starting to see the, the fruits of that there, there out now. Plus we sound like Americans. So, so they're like, hey, no one, no one in Idaho will know that we shot this thing in Canada. They'll all think that we shot it in America and spent uh, twice as much on our television shows. But we didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess, I mean, looking to the future, I know, like you said, there's obviously uh, uncertainty in things that you can't control. Yeah. But are there other projects, other things that you're looking at, the things that we should be excited about? The short answer is Yes. Uh, um, I have a wonderful arc on Blindspot, which is a show on NBC. I'm not sure how many of you guys get it or don't hear, but uh, yeah. that's coming up in season three. So that was really cool. New York, shooting in New York, shooting in Morocco. Um, the characters, characters, a fun character in, in little like three when it comes down to it. He's uh, sort of a bit of a rogue. A bit of a charming rogue kind of guy. Uh, doesn't have the uh, doesn't have the you know he's not a, he's not a series regular, so he doesn't have the full complexity that three has. But very fun character to play, uh, great arc, and uh, that's coming up um, for those of you who have access to season three of Blind Spot. And in terms of the next uh, series regular um, gig, yeah, that's that, that search has just begun. I was holding out hope, kind of, uh, and I didn't really. I didn't even audition or take those things until maybe about a month and a half ago. So 
Canada is a bit smaller of an industry. You need to be a little more patient. It's not like there's a hundred things filming there at the same time. And you know, you finish one series regularly and like, all right, great. Where's the next one? You know, it doesn't, it's not the Canadian industry. Um, so time will tell, but for sure it's something that, uh, you know, I'm putting out there and, um, part of it's part of it's the vision as well. Part of it's saying, okay, like when I moved from Montreal to Toronto, I told my agent, I want a show that is, and I described one, two, three, four, five. And it was like a, a list of 10 things and it was dark matter. And the character was three literally. And that I, it didn't even exist at the time that I said to my agent, this is what I want. So for me, it's been a process of understanding what I want. I'm going to make that list. And I don't know what it was because this was what I wanted. And when you get what you want, I want more. <laughs> like you can't say that there isn't another show like this. So I, I, I do believe very strongly in the power of, um, I don't know, call it visioning. If you want, I don't know. I'm going to mean it to sound flaky, but in order to achieve something in life, you got to know what you're, what you're walking towards. And so, you know, a couple months to sort of re rethink and reimagine what it is you really want for the next stage, uh, is totally fine and that's kind of where I am right now so we'll see I don't know what it is that I want next other than Dark Matter season 4 <laughs> I think we all want that um, if we get back to fans here today do you have a message for all the Dark Matter fans watching this all around the world oh just a big thank you for coming on this ride with us uh, it has been an honor to meet many of you at conventions um, it's been a whole lot of fun playing this uh playing this character and describing this world with you guys and uh, we'll see you next time thank yeah. you so much yeah. thanks guys Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.